you know what? I'm tired. I think we all are a little, aren't we? There's something powerful in just allowing ourselves to be with that. Hey folks, Shara Carruthers here, and thank you so much for making the choice to tune in today. You know, even though it's something that many of us have known or maybe even suspected, it feels kind of like these times are somehow showing or even reinforcing that there's a collective energy that we all share and contribute to. You know, like a crowd at a sporting event, there's this palpable energy that we're all a part of. It's starting to become painfully and maybe beautifully clear to many of us that we are not just islands floating singularly through the oceans of life. What we do impacts the whole. And how we feel and choose is a reflection of the whole. This is a very yogic idea that we decided to dive into and and swim around in a little bit with our guest today, yoga therapist, author, activist, and founder of Accessible Yoga, Jeevana Heyman. And Jeevana's work and the work of his organization, it centers around the simple and yet somehow challenging idea of making the teachings and the practices of yoga truly accessible and available to everyone. And so they offer trainings and conferences dedicated to creating the awareness and the knowledge that's required to make yoga and living equally available to all people, regardless of gender or race or sex or mental, physical, and emotional abilities. But ultimately, and maybe even more importantly, accessible yoga is asking us to consider what kind of world could it be if we were all dedicated in some small or big way to making the idea of access for all a reality. And you know, ever since Maria came back from teaching at the Accessible Yoga Conference in New York last year, she's talked about how it changed her whole view of what accessibility actually means for the better. And so I was really excited to speak to Jeevana, and this was a really juicy conversation. In fact, we ended up all over the map, exploring everything from social justice to self-care to the Yoga Sutras and how ultimately they're all connected, just like we are. But what I loved most was Jeevana's warm-hearted and gentle presence. You know, we talked about the power that we as people and teachers of yoga can have on our students in the world and how it all starts with who we're willing to be ourselves. And after this conversation, I definitely understand why Jeevana is having such a big impact in the yoga sphere. You know, I think it was Gandhi who said, In a gentle way, you can shake the world. And it feels very much like Jeevana is living this truth every single day. So I won't make you wait any longer to enjoy this conversation that Maria and I had with Jeevana Heyman. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Hi. <laughs> Morning. Hello. Um, and we've got, so Maria, you, you're up the street from me in Lenox. Gina, where are you? Are you, you're in California somewhere? Yeah, I'm in uh, Santa Barbara, California. Oh, okay. Okay. So obviously the question is, you know, how are things going 
over there. How are you? How are you weathering what feels like quite a storm? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of intense. Um, mostly because our government is so horrible, but yeah. um, mostly daily life is the same. I mean, I've had to stop traveling for work and stop all in-person teaching, but most people have stopped. So, I mean, it's not unusual. I just think here in the U.S., it's going to go on longer uh, than a lot of other places because we're not dealing with it, um, yeah. which is frustrating. Yeah. Jeevana, how did the first online accessible yoga training go? Oh, that was great, actually. In fact, it kind of spoiled me. And I thought maybe I don't need to be traveling so much because I could, I could reach from home, you know. So that was, it was really fun. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how effective it was for the people taking it. I hope so. I hope it was. Uh, but it was great to not have to fly a long distance and stay in some unusual place and not really know where I'm going, you know. Um, so. It was kind of it was kind of awesome. I, I know one person who sat in on it, and and it, it um, they said it sounded amazing. Oh, it, good. Okay. It was amazing because you could have special guests from all over the place. Yeah, which yeah, that was great. Yeah, so I could. We had trainers from all over the world, actually. Um, you know, because I have people who lead this program all over the place, and they could all join for this um, online version of the training. So that was awesome, and and actually. That's the thing. It ended up being um, a lot more special guests than I usually have, so I didn't get quite as much time. But um, you know, I, it was it was great. You know, it was great fun, and like I really want to keep doing it. Actually, I really think even when even when I can go back to teaching in person, I want to still offer more stuff online. It's just it's such an accessible platform, you know, which is great for people. That that's what I do. So making things accessible, so it just makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah, I often I had thought that this whole COVID thing, um, at least in terms of the at least in terms of the yoga world, but perhaps well, perhaps even wider than that, it feels like it sort of sped things up. So the direction that we may have been heading in, you know, in terms of bringing things online and and all of that was sort of moving at a certain pace, and then COVID sort of you know kind of warp speeded it. Yeah, yeah, and actually, um, I also think. It helped us learn more about accessibility. I think a lot of people with disabilities or chronic illnesses have been kind of living this way anyway. Mm -hmm. kind of live in lockdown, you know, where they can't really go out much. They have to work at home. Um, they have to be careful about, you know, um, contact maybe because having a weakened immune system or something. So in a way, I think, I hope it increased people's sensitivity around those issues um, moving forward. I don't know if it did, but um, definitely for me, you know, definitely raised my awareness. And I, I think there's, there's a lot we learn from that, you know, that we can, we can be more flexible um, with the way that we work and the way we live that is possible. Exactly. And we can, when, if it does ever go back to whatever it is, we can use the best of both worlds to make things accessible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I have to say personally, I it wasn't. It's not my first epidemic. I mean, I lived through the AIDS epidemic, and that's really my my backstory. Is that you know I was an AIDS activist, and you know I just think people. I don't know. I guess so. For me, it really wasn't that new. It was more just reminded me. It still does. Reminds me a lot of the those AIDS early AIDS days. Um, I mean, it's a different kind of virus, the way it spreads, but still, you know, there's this kind of the fact that we have to change behavior and there's a lot of fear and unknown. 
Um, and I think, you know, HIV, actually HIV has been around for 30 years and there's still no um, vaccine, there's still no cure. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting that people assume that we're gonna have a vaccine or a cure like right away, you know, <laughs> COVID. Yeah. Uh, when hopefully it won't take 30 years, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that's that's still what's happening with HIV, which is still spreading around the world. I've heard there's at least 5,000 um, new HIV infections every day around the world. Wow. Yeah, that's, that is something. I was having a conversation with a group of yoga teachers about a week ago, and we were talking about, I was sort of kind of coming to grips with the idea that Deep down, there's some part of me that's sort of ready for things to go in some ways to go back or expecting things to go back to where they, to the way they were before. Yeah. But that I don't actually think that's possible. I don't actually think we will ever go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a new normal. I mean, I think hopefully it'll get a little bit better um, somehow. I mean, who knows how and what? I mean, I know some places have really been successful in reducing um, transmission with COVID. And so they are able to open up. I don't know how it is over there, but here it's not going that way, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think there will be a new normal. And I think that's, that's a challenge for yoga, honestly. I think teaching in-person classes is gonna be hard for a long time. Yeah. Um, which is really devastating, I think, for yoga teachers, you know. Well, I yeah. came back last week to teaching was my first week having in, in classes. I teach in a huge airy room with a limited amount of people. It was wonderful to be in the same room with the students uh -huh. zooming. But I don't know whether that if this second wave happens, we might have to close back up. Did you have them wear masks or what? Did you just have space? No, I didn't. I had them about two meters apart and. Um, I had 20 in a room that could honestly fit. I've had 50 or 60 people in there before. So it was a really big airy space with all the windows open. But given the letter, the letter published that it could be airborne transmission, um, we may have to rethink it because because we, we're in an area where we've had very few cases, but we just had a lot of people mm -hmm. come for holidays. So, so we yeah. were lulled into safety, but we need to be careful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, similar here. I mean, we're kind of a place where people come for vacation, which is a problem, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a small town, but lots of people visit us, so it's uh, a little sketchy. Did it bring up any trauma for you having this, or do you feel more like being, that it isn't your first uh, epidemic rodeo has prepared you better? Um, you know, it has been a little traumatic. I, I've noticed myself thinking a lot more about those days. You know, it was a long time ago. Um, and I think I'd kind of, it's almost like another lifetime, you know, when, when it's been 25 years or something, you know, since so many people, since I lost so many people I and mean, just so many friends died and people that were important to me. Um, but actually it's funny, I've definitely found myself going back. Like I, I've, I've taken out old photographs and I've been going through them. Um, so definitely it's been, I don't know if just traumatic, but it's definitely brought it back um, in good and bad ways, you know? So I think it's reminded me of a lot of great people and I've been thinking a lot about them. And um, I, I've been posting a bit about that on social media, just some of my memories of, you know, um, protesting 
since that's that's the other thing I'm finding really interesting is the the kind of the connection between COVID and um, the and Black Lives Matter, the awareness around uh, racial injustice here, actually all over the world, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, and also what happened with AIDS, which was AIDS, and then the kind of um, I would say ACT UP, which is a group I was involved with, but more really just like um, I think gay rights and just kind of or got a queer liberation, whatever you want to call it. But there was definitely a shift that happened, I think, from the AIDS epidemic. And maybe there's a relationship between those two or some kind of parallel there. I don't know exactly. I wondered about that because in the state at the moment, it feels to me like there's a bit of a perfect storm happening with yeah. the, the completely, you know, um, the government that is basically useless and COVID and then and now Black Lives Matter has sort of um, had a bit of a resurgence. And so I do wonder, is there some, you know, is there some connection between all these things of people feeling, you know, I just wondered if people were feeling, you know, um, when a large population or part of the population feels in some ways, for lack of a better term, oppressed, like they can't move and do the things that they used to do if they're listening a little bit better? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is definitely a connection. I don't know what it is, but I mean, maybe it's just that we all had to pause because we were all, you know, we stopped kind of our normal activity. But also I think it's just that, um, I think there's maybe more sensitivity by in general because we know we're all suffering. And so then one, the people who are already being marginalized suffer more. Um, you can see that with COVID, that there is a racial inequity in terms of who's getting sick and dying from COVID, at least in the U.S. The numbers I've yeah. seen are kind of shocking, actually. Yeah. Um, and so I think maybe that's it. Like, just people have the awareness of, wait, this is bad. Oh, wait, but it's even worse if there's issues of racism. And, then, and that kind of just helps make the focus. Plus, everyone, I think, just was kind of sitting around watching the news and, like, mm -hmm. saw what happened with George Floyd. I mean, that was maybe shocking. With ACT UP, it was slightly different, but I think maybe it was more consciously connected that AIDS was like killing a whole generation of gay men, really. I mean, it affected a lot of other communities, but it was primarily gay men. And, you know, my generation really, I mean, I'm 53 years old, but it was really the men that were just slightly older than me. Like I was young when it started, I, I got, I would just come out um, so it was men that were maybe five, 10 years older than me. And like that generation of gay men was basically like, just, I don't know, devastated. And, um, and I think we had our reaction was like very consciously like to try to get attention because of what was going on. I don't, I mean, with, with the current situation, it's less directly related, but there's definitely a relationship. Um, but in any case, I think it's positive. I think anytime that we stop and look, we learn actually same with, it's like yoga, right? We bring it back to yoga, uh, <laughs> which is like, that's the whole point of yoga to me, which is to um, pause or get create space, you know, in the body, in the, in the breath and the mind, right? We're creating space so that we could actually see more clearly. And I think that's, that's kind of what happened collectively with COVID and then, oh, wait, you see the racism for what it is, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's like that, um, increased self-awareness that yoga brings. It's like we all took a pause. That's right. And it, and it helps us guide our way through what is complicated. I know, I know um, 
the COVID thing is complicated for every single person. And then the Black Lives Matter is complicated depending on who you are and your position of privilege. But we all need that ability to, to sense inwardly to kind of guide us through it intelligently, yeah. sensitively. Right. And that's what yoga is for, honestly. I mean, I think that people don't realize that maybe, but I think that's why that's what the practices are for. Increased self-awareness. Um, I don't know what we think they're for, but that's what I, that's what I feel like. What do you, do you think? Do you think that's what yoga is for? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I thought about it as much until now, or maybe as much until I attended your accessibility, your accessibility training and conference, Mm -hmm. which was where um, you really interconnected or broadened accessibility much more to social justice. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's good to hear. I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with the idea, so I don't know whether I'm just, sometimes I think I live in a bubble, well, I do, like inside my head. But um, <laughs> like, I feel like, like I, I was just writing about this. So I think I told you, you know, I'm working on a new book and like, this is really the subject of that book um, is this question. So around, hear all about it. Yeah, I mean, this is it actually. Um, it's about you know yoga and social justice, but not so much in a, I mean, in a more practical way. Like I really try to look at the actual like the ancient teachings of yoga and what they're trying to show us and how we can how we can bring them into contemporary our contemporary lives. And I think this is the that the idea of self awareness, increased self awareness, clear thinking. I think that's really the theme. Um, for me, of the book, um, that as we increase our awareness of ourself, we begin to see our role, like you said before, we see our privilege, mm. uh, we see, maybe see our own prejudices. And, and that is, and actually also, I think we see, we see how we're connected. We can see how we're different than others and how we're connected. I could go on. And, uh... No, I, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting too, because we've had a number of conversations with people, obviously about, about yoga and, you know, the current state of yoga and, and in the West and kind of where yoga came from and then where yoga is going. And it feels to me, maybe just in my little bubble, maybe I'm in that bubble too. It feels to me there is this, um, there is this, I don't want to say evolution, but it feels like we are more, we're heading in a direction where we're starting to understand the real under the real foundations of yoga and what it's really about and what it's yeah. really for. And it's so in, in some ways, and I've been asking this question with a lot of people that we've talked to in some ways, events and experiences that we're like now are these opportunities to dive deeper into our yoga, or at least to recognize that connection of our, of what we're learning in our yoga to what we actually need in our lives right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I agree. I think I think it is evolving a lot. I think yoga is going through a huge transformation in the in the West. I, I think yoga itself hasn't changed, but the way it's taught and practice is changing. I mean, in fact, I hope we're getting back more to um, some of the basic teachings. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we're we're learning, finally realizing that um, it's not just about the body, that we're using the body in yoga, but that it's not just about having, you know, it's not, it's more than exercise. Um, I always say exercise is good, but um, yoga offers so much more, you know, and I think that we could really 
focus on those pieces. That's where the, the real power lies. And I, hear, I feel that too. I don't, again, I don't know if it's my bubble, like who I'm following and the, the world that I live in, but I've seen a huge change. Um, yeah. In terms of the way people are talking about yoga and the awareness of issues around accessibility, um, around um, social justice, for sure. Also f- around cultural appropriation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's just, it feels like we've, we're, we're, growing up in the West, at least, in the way we're talking about it and practicing. So has the desire to write this book, has that come out of your own personal experience of, um, you know, being an activist and, or has it been, has it been that this is just an opportune moment? Like, where has it come from? Yeah. I mean, I started this project, um, I don't know, like a year ago, more than a year ago. So before all this, current stuff was going on, I was already writing this book. I just feel like I've been, yeah, my background was being as an AIDS activist. And so I, I was doing that before I got into yoga. They were, they were parallel really for me, but um, I've always been interested in that aspect of yoga and the yoga teachings. And so I've always had that um, perspective and I've been looking for those connections. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why I got interested in yoga because I was really interested in um yeah in that part i mean if you think about like gandhi like i just i mean yeah. he's a controversial figure a bit but if you think about what he did how he like overthrew the british colonial government of india and he said he used you know the practices of yoga he used the two, first two um con, uh, first two teachings of yama uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and satya and he based his teaching um which was called satyagraha on those two teachings, those two ideas. And that he said, that's what he used to make major political change. And that just blew my mind when I learned about that, you know. Um, and I, I think a lot of modern civil rights movements have have actually been influenced by him. Um, you know, I know Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela both studied um, his work and were greatly influenced by him. The idea of um, nonviolent protesting really came out of Gandhi's work. So I just I think there's there's an intimate relationship there. I, I don't think I'm making it up. You know, I, mean, I think it's really obvious. <laughs> and I just but I just don't hear I don't hear a lot of I mean, actually, maybe now I do a little more like since um, the current like revolution or uprising that I feel happening in the world. There does seem more awareness that about that connection with yoga and social justice. But I still don't hear a lot of people talking about the kind of the deeper connection which i can maybe talk about more like like where where do we find those teachings in in yoga philosophy do you know what i mean like actually i think it's there i really do you want to talk about it more i'd love to hear yeah i do yeah (laughs) well i mean because that's what i'm writing about right now and i feel like it's important that we um we look to it now I, i also realized that um, hmm. I'll say I'd say that we've been we've been influenced a bit by academics and like I'm not against academics, but yeah. I think that there are different ways of of interpreting the yoga teachings. Like my my experience has been mostly working with the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and the Bhagavad Gita, and those two works in particular. Um, 
it's so interesting to read different translations and some are more academic and some are more like practical or yeah, like experiential. And I guess I, I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in like a very practical um, kind of, what is the word, you know, like operational, like, you know, operational. kind of, you just, you can put it into some action rather than yeah. debating over whether the meaning was this or that endlessly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like there's a place for that and that's wonderful, but I think what, I guess what I'm saying is like what I've seen happen in, in maybe the last 25 years in, in kind of the westernized yoga world is that it's like we've obsessively taught asana, obsessed about the body, and we've made positive strides in that area. I think asana is taught beautifully these days. And I think we've allowed the philosophy um, and, and the history of yoga to be just in the realm of academics. And I haven't seen a lot of teachers really skilled or even practitioners that I know of really skilled about applying the teachings directly in their lives or in the way they teach or practice yoga. It feels to me like there's been this separation of the asana practice, you know, like modern postural yoga from the more philosophical teachings. Um, and I, and I feel like we've allowed it to go into that more academic realm, which again, isn't bad, but I just feel like we need to take it back and make it more accessible. So that's really my interest in the book. Um, and, but I also say it as a bit of a, like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm nervous about it. <laughs> Why? Really? <laughs> well, because of that academic world, I just feel like yeah. it's dangerous for me to give my interpretation. I'm not an academic, so I, I hear you. We just, we've just, um, in, or we interviewed a while back these two gentlemen, David Charlton and Ranji Roy, who've written a book called Embodying the Yoga Sutras. Have you heard oh, of this? Yeah. I have. No, I don't. I haven't read it. I actually have it, though. It's, it is brilliant. David Chalmers, I think. Char oh, I thought it was Charlton. Oh, Charlton. It doesn't matter. We'll, I'll get it. <laughs> we'll get it right in the, in the, in the show notes. But um, yeah, I have it somewhere here. It's brilliant. And I think this kind of, I've been on kind of a similar in the, maybe the last kind of six months to a year, um, this kind of yoga sutra geeking out, you know, reading like 10 different translations and really just trying to find, looking for exactly what you're talking about, Jiva, looking for some direction for my life and for the life of my students and something to kind of help me understand what in the hell is going on <laughs> in yeah. my head and how I'm operating and and how I can, you know, operate in a way that feels more uh, free, that feels more mm. liberated. Mm. And it's all in there. It's yeah. all in there. Yeah. And there and are great, great books, right? They're great contemporary books about that, I think, about yeah. applying the teachings. I mean, there's a few that I know of, but I don't know if there's any about social justice exactly. Hmm? Oh, I see. Connecting it to social justice. So yeah. how are you doing that? Can you give an example of how we can take those teachings and apply them? Mm -hmm. Is that too broad? Well, since we're talking about the sutras, I would say, and something we already touched on, this idea of um, increased self-awareness, I would say that um, if, if you look at the second chapter of the sutras, book two, there's, you know, there's the Ashtanga Yoga is a section that most people focus on, which is really important, right? That's where Patanjali offers the eight limbs. It's where asana is listed, um, where he really delineates 
meditation and the place of meditation in the in yoga practice. He also brings up yama and yama and all that. But before he before he presents it, it's actually Sutra 29. The the section leading up to it is generally skipped over when people study that that book. But it's so interesting to me because what it does, he's basically he's framing it as um, like a why to me, he's, he's giving us a why practice kind of just like what you just, what you just said, um, Chara about, you know, giving us like direction in our lives. And he first explains in the beginning of, um, chapter two, that, um, we're trying to overcome our ignorance, right? The obstacles yeah. to, uh, yeah. to our enlightenment. And, and then he, when he gets around Sutra 15, I think it is, he talks about um oh and then it gets into karma a bit and it talks about we can avoid future pain that future pain is avoidable and i think that's huge right he's telling us that because obviously all of us want to be without pain we want to be peaceful or happy whatever word it is you're using Uh, and then he says the way to do that is through um self-knowledge self-awareness which he he uses the word viveka which is basically discriminative discernment or or you could just use the word dis- discernment, which is a really interesting word. Because what what often happens, I find, is that yoga teachers talk a lot about the beginning of the book, you know, of the uh, book one, sutra two, yoga chitta vritti naroda, how we talk a lot about restraining the mind. But what he's saying here in, in book two is actually working with viveka, which is kind of not restraining the mind as much as clarifying the mind like clear vision. He's saying, he's saying, this is the, the actual goal. Uh, and this is the way out. He says it's through clear vision, the way out of the ignorance, the way to avoid pain is having this clear vision. Specifically, he's telling us to begin to discern the difference between what's real and unreal, you know, because this is a dual philosophy, right? Between what's nature and what's spirit. So he's telling us this is how you can tell what's spirit and what's nature through discriminative discernment. And he says the way to create that in our lives is through the eight limbs of yoga, through practicing Ashtanga yoga. And so he actually then presents Ashtanga yoga. And, and I, I think it's so important to think that he's presenting all of the, all of the eight limbs in that context, mm-hmm. that it's by having clear vision. And I, I keep using that word because to me, that is exactly what we need. We need um, a practice that helps us see the world more clearly and allows us to transcend our kind of a, our egos, selfish desires, our attachments, our individual preferences. Do you know what I mean? We, we need to have some kind of a vision that transcends that. And to me, that is actually social justice. Mm. Uh, social justice is a vision of the world where you realize that you want everyone to have what the kind of the, that same peace that you're striving for. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's that kind of like uh, generosity of spirit of actually seeing yourself and others, even though you know their life, our lives are totally different at our, in our heart, we're the same. And I think that's, that's the teaching that I get from the Yoga Sutras. Does that make sense to you? I don't know. Love that. I'm only silent because that was so beautiful. Yeah. Good. That is really yeah. beautiful. Thanks. And so... Yeah, go ahead. With that as a context, I'm almost, I'm always thinking, all right, then what do we do? 
<laughs> what do we do? Yeah. And yet what I keep coming back to, and I want, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Um, what I keep coming back to is that there's this sort of foundation that we have to create, which also kind of comes back to this idea. You mentioned Gandhi. It's this idea that we have to start with ourselves. Mm. Yes. And I wonder, like, what are your thoughts about that? Because we're always, you know what it's like. We're always running out and trying to figure out, like, how do we fix the world? And then get disheartened because it feels so hard. And we feel like, well, there's nothing. What can I do? Yeah. That's a great question. I think that's that's one of the questions I need to address in the book. I think um, what what well what we learn in yoga is that mm-hmm. we can practice karma yoga service, and so that which kind of brings me to, to the Bhagavad Gita, which I mean I think similarly has a really strong message for social justice, which is that the Gita is basically the whole narrative, the whole story is about right action. You know, I mean, like Arjuna is basically being taught how to be a yogi and how to act in the world, um, which is to stand up against evil and be brave. Um, And I know we have to be careful. I always say it's be careful not to defend war with the Gita because this is an inner analogy. But I still think the idea of right action is key. And that's what you're kind of getting to, I think, is like, how do I act? What when is it when is it correct to act? I mean, that's what the Gita is answering, actually. and, and the, you know, Krishna says we act by practicing karma yoga and karma yoga is service. And, and I think it's so misunderstood in the, in the West that we think of service as like, um, I don't know, like volunteering. We think of service as like doing some kind of work exchange at your local yoga studio. But, that, you know what I mean? That's how we've defined it. But that's not what it is. Um, service is acting without that selfishness goes back to what I was just saying about from the, from the sutras, actually. Um, Service is actually a practice that allows us to see where we are attached, like where we have our own, where our own selfishness, self selfishness comes in. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, you need to take care of yourself. I mean, you, but you see it clearly when you're serving. So meaning that when you do an action, you see what it is that you want out of that action, right? You want to see where, where, what is it that you expect? What are your expectations? What are your attachments? Meaning like, what do you think you're going to get back from the world that's going to make you happy? Um, that's what service can offer you is that, again, that clarity of understanding yourself and your motivation. And I think that that gets to social justice to me too, because I think we need to start questioning ourselves before we act. Um, do you know what I mean? Like begin to look at your own motivation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it is all about this, this self-inquiry, this self-knowledge that's going to get us that clarity that you talk about. Right. And that's what yoga does. So like, I'll, you know, all the practices of yoga are designed to cultivate that. Yeah. Increase self-awareness. And then, and then it does what you just said, which is it allows you to see your own preferences and also your um the way that you have prejudice and your own motivation i think those things become more clear through your practice so i think that's essential i mean if you're going to do social justice work the first thing you have to do is really analyze yourself and look at your own privilege um and and start questioning your own life i mean that's that's where social justice has to start um otherwise you're not going to be very effective i don't think um 
Yeah. And so it's related with yoga. Sorry. Sorry. When I think about social justice, yeah. um, it feels like a whole, um, it, it feels like a whole, a whole movement as opposed to something that's, that's something that's similar or sorry, simpler. And it feels like to me, for a lot of people out there, they think, or they hear the word or the term social justice and they think, oh, well, that's not, that's not for me. You know, that's just, that's, that's a big movement thing that you have yeah. to kind of jump through or do. Um, and so I wonder, what would you say to those uh, folks who yeah. um, who have that view or who feel like, look, I'm not a social justice warrior. I'm just me over here. Right. That's a great question. I, I think actually go back to yoga and understand that there really isn't a difference between what goes on inside of you and what's happening outside. I mean, there's there's a parallel there. It's like, um, in a sense, like, I don't know how to say it. The community has, um, is like a big mind, you know, it's like, so like America, whatever that, or the, the yeah, I don't know what we call this place that I'm living in, the United States of America. Um, yeah. It's like we have one mind. And when we think of us as, you know, as a community, yeah. and I think that mind needs to do some yoga, you know what I mean? Like that mind needs to do a lot of uh, self-inquiry and reflection. Mm. Uh, and it hasn't done so. And I think that begins by the individual members of that community doing the work. So I feel like I think that we can all begin to do some work around our own privilege and, and prejudice to then begin to impact the, the community at large. You know what I mean? Like there is that connection between the personal and the political in many, many ways. Um, because the collective is made up of individuals. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there is no separation. I mean, whatever the individuals are doing and thinking, that's what's happening on a larger scale. And if the, if the collective is ego driven, greedy, selfish, um, racist, you know what I mean? Then that's, that's what the, that's how the collective will act. And that's what we, that's what we see here, at least here in the U S. Um, and so it takes individuals to become more self-aware first of themselves, and then their people they are impacting. You know what I mean? So like each of us can begin to transform ourselves in our own minds, and then that will impact our family and our friends and our local community and anyone we touch. And I think that's how we make change. I mean, we, there's no other way, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think if you do that work inside yourself, you're you're living it by example. It's like trying to tell people what to do, but when they see you do it, they feel that that you're centered and mm -hmm. they they you have an influence almost osmotically. I don't know, you know. And then if you yeah. take action, there's a trust and a safety that you you've done your work, so your voice mm. is easier to hear. Yeah, it's funny. Because actually in the sutras, if you look at some of the yamas and niyamas, and actually again in like the third book, Patanjali talks about some of the cities that come, you know, like the mm -hmm. powers that come from yoga. And actually one of them is about the influence you have over other people, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that it's just like, if you're really dedicated to that thing, yeah. you know, that will impact others. Your, mm -hmm. your clarity of vision, I think, can impact others who are connected to you. But I also think it's not an excuse not to act. I mean, we also, as you're going through that awareness, 
increasing your self-awareness process, um, you're still acting. And so you're doing your best to vote and to demonstrate and to speak out. I mean, I think those are also, um, those are forms of your practice as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can, I don't think you have to wait, you know what I mean, until you're done with this internal process before you go and speak publicly. I think it's just an ongoing dialogue within yourself and within your community, go, going back and forth all the time. You go out outside, you come inside. You know what I mean? It's like constant back and forth for me. Um, yeah. And there's a balance there. Yeah. I I um I often think about it in from from my studies of Ayurveda and teachings mm-hmm. of Ayurveda mm-hmm. as this idea that who we are is a relationship between what's happening outside of us and what's happening inside of us. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, there's this constant um shifting of our attention and perspective from out to in, out to in. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, um, because even over here in Australia as an American. The last three years, I'm like the last 20 years with Trump and the last (laughs) however many years it's been, have probably my most anxious and, you know, just I've had so many terrible days. And I've realized that those things are happening. You know, I'm all the way over here. Uh I'm not physically involved in them. And yet they are impacting my physical experience of the world. And so when I think about that, I think, right, well, then if I can just maybe just be a little bit caught, because I'm in my anxious state, I'm impacting my kids experience, my husband's experience, my students experience. And so if I can just calm down or find a way to, you know, deal with my internal, that can also impact my external. Yeah. And it feels like, um, you know, as yoga teachers and instructors, we have this I, I keep saying opportunity. When we talked to Jay, Jay Brown, he sort of thought of it in a different way. But I think we have this opportunity to kind of impact people in a way that can affect the greater good, if you know what I mean, even just by helping to make, helping to turn people into their own anxiety or their own, you know, their own physical state. Yeah. And help yeah. them become less fearful too. I, I found that that's, I feel like that's a big role as a yoga teacher is to help people be less fearful. Cause I think people who are fearful don't act well. Yeah. They act from their right. most base tribal, you know, those horrible, um, exactly what's happening in the Trump world is those, um, not the openness of heart and not the sense of connectedness to others. Right. But, from as, fear. but as also as a culture, and I'm talking about a kind of the greater Western culture, that kind of thrives on, that feels a bit numb and thrives on kind of intensity to wake up. It feels to me like this moment, like we talked about with the, um, you know, with this perfect storm that's happening with basically all the pain that's happening in the world is kind of showing people that they are in pain, if you know what I mean. It's kind of that, it's like that pinprick that's making people kind of tune in. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah. so it feels like there's, if nothing else, there's the, the benefit of this moment is that it's making people feel. And when they feel, then they might even start to get curious about where the pain's coming from. But that's so interesting what you both just said, because on the one hand, I think pain can send us into fear, which could lead us to more being more conservative and um, yeah. limited in our 
openness to mm-hmm. embrace others and you know limit our generosity and be more selfish but then also like you said pain can actually be a motivator for spiritual awakening yeah um but it, it, it can go either way like i think to be honest that's like that's the deciding factor in whether you're going to have a conscious spiritual path or not is how you respond to to pain in your life and, you know and i don't mean pain like just like physical pain but maybe more like suffering you know and that's that's actually how you how patanjali begins book two with tapas you know Kriya yoga. I mean, that's that's how he says. Well, the way you practice yoga is through um, looking at pain, like looking at how you respond to pain, which is what basically he's saying in tapas. That that whatever I don't know. People translate that word in so many different ways, but mm-hmm. uh, it's basically that. How do you respond? How do you respond to pain? Do you get more fearful and curl up and and get angry at the world, or do you use pain to think, wow, I need to grow and change. Um, I need to really understand why I'm reacting this way. Do you know what I mean? Like, are, are you willing to reflect more and ask more questions of yourself and learn more about yourself because of that pain or does it shut you down? And I'm not what judging you think- that bad. I'm sorry, I don't mean to, I don't want to be judgmental though. Cause I just want to say like, people can respond to pain however they want. Like, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying there's conscious spiritual practice of using pain to grow or there's not doing that, which is okay too. Like we don't have to. And where it's not, sometimes it's, well, where there's trauma, sometimes it's unconscious, but that's where the role of a yoga teacher as a kind of co-regulator, as someone who, as someone who sees your potential, your peaceful heart and can say, let me, Mm -hmm. let me introduce you to these methods. It's going to be okay. Let's get sick. So we can explore. Yeah, because exactly. Most people don't feel that they have the security or safety to explore that pain. So the minute pain comes, it's like, oh, no, I'm just going to fight back or recoil and freeze. You know, all those things. Fawn. Yeah. I mean, fawning. I was just reading. I don't know where I read this yesterday about fawning is probably the most common um, reaction. You know, fight or flight reaction is actually fawning. And fawning is what you see over Trump, like the way that people respond to him. You know, most people have this kind of awareness that he's basically evil, but the people that are supporting him actually fawn over him. And it's actually, it's a fear mechanism, Mm. a fear response um, for someone who's in trauma. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Fascinating. It is too. What, what, okay, so what do you think, um, what do you think impacts the reaction that people are going to have to this pain? Like we've talked a little bit about, you know, there's, there's a couple of different ways for them. I mean, make it simple. Um, because I keep thinking, well, then how can we affect people having this, for lack of a better term, more positive um, response to it? Is there something that we can do yeah. to Actually, Maria really touched on it. I mean, about the yoga teacher can have that, can be that person, you know, to to help regulate um, other people's responses. I think sometimes, um, either by being an example or by showing, by by offering practices that help regulate the nervous system, or just being kind and welcoming. You know what I mean? Like, I think literally just making people feel safe by being accessible yeah. yoga teacher. <laughs> You see that potential in people that 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 inner heart, and you're going to 
bring them the practice no matter how. But that also means that they are seen and heard and valued and come into a space of safety and belonging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I would say that's my main goal when I'm teaching is helping people feel like they're safe and they belong. I don't care about the other stuff as much that we're doing, you know, <laughs> but just bringing a lightness and a relaxation and a, a, yeah, a sense of belonging is so important. I think for exactly the reason that you're touching on, which thank you, that really helped me. I don't think I've seen it that way before, but well, I'm mental health and the polyvagal theory yeah. and- you know, just reactions to trauma and the way that through our social engagement system, we co-regulate with people and I, mm-hmm. and making people feel safe enough. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is just teaching good, safe yoga and, and opening the belonging. Just, you know, you wrote the book on it. <laughs> but for some reason, what is coming to my mind is also the, the demonstrations that are going on and, and, and something that I really want to share, which is, I think that because I spent a lot of time demonstrating in my life, I think demonstrating can be an expression of love. Mm-hmm. And I think that can also come out of this work. So it could be that um, it doesn't always have to be just an internal experience. It can actually be an expression like demonstrating in a nonviolent way, which is what the vast majority of the demonstrations we're seeing like by far are actually nonviolent. And I think people are there because they're, they're, expressing love and i think that's such a beautiful symbol to me of this of of hope actually uh, and of what yoga is trying to teach us to me that's a yoga practice to be demonstrating in a loving way like i think that's such a beautiful yeah do you know what i mean it's just not always an internal thing i guess as i mean it's not always sitting quietly in a yoga class or by yourself or whatever it can be an outward expression um, that's the way that yoga can appear in our lives I wanted to ask about that because there's this thing about, um, oh, call people in, not call people out. And, and um, there's this, in a way, a terror of white fragility and, and things like that. But have there been moments mm. where you thought, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing the calling in thing. I'm going to call out. That where uh, you stepped into action and thought, I need, um, I need to rattle the cage or the saber or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I think for sure if someone is – in in harm's way then i think we need to be we need to use anything that we have to protect them so any whatever anger we have whatever it is that we need we we have at our disposal we use to protect people that we love and i think that's what we're seeing even when there is people turning angry um i think it can be understandable in a sense too but i i would just say in terms of um myself I think as a white man, I think I can generally call people in. I think that's my job, you know, that um, I can, because I I have privilege, it's like I can be in that position and actually speak up Mm -hmm. pretty clearly for things. And I don't, I I don't usually do it in an angry way because I just find it's not necessary, but um, that's because I have, I have privilege, you know, to do that. Uh, I don't know if that made sense, but. That makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, what I'm sort of coming to, or the question that's kind of in my head um, is this idea of creating safety or creating, you know, safe spaces. And I kind of wondered, and you've sort of said this already, but I'm, I'm, I don't know, my brain is sort of expanding a little bit and thinking about it. The idea of accessible yoga being about creating safety. And when we think about 
the breadth of this idea of creating safety, how do we begin to get our heads around it and our, and our hearts around, around it? Mm-hmm. As, uh, you mean as yoga teachers or in our lives generally? Well, that's a good question. I think perhaps as yoga teachers, because that feels a little bit more like a scope that we can look at and address. Yeah. Well, I, something's been on my mind related to that, which is I, I had someone, I just wrote actually a blog about this, um, which I haven't published, but I can share it with you, which is that a really experienced teacher who I, who I really like. She told me the other day, we're talking about accessibility in yoga. And she said something like, um, well, she said, I'm not the teacher for everyone. And she said it in this way that was kind of like saying, I mean, I think, I think that's a common thought that yoga teachers share, you know, we're not the teacher for everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's two different ways of looking at that phrase. One, one is like, yeah, of course, you know, not all yoga students will come to you. Like that's true. And probably many, te- many students won't want what you have to offer. And that's true, but that's not an excuse for you to not be completely welcoming 100% of the time to any student who does come to you. And I'm afraid that's how it's often used. There's kind of this misunderstanding in yoga that it's okay to be exclusive. You know, that's okay to focus on a particular thing. And that, my, oh, my thing is power vinyasa flow. And then, well, if, you know, come to me if that's what you want. And I would say that that's not, that's not okay with me, actually. That's not um, yogic. You know, yoga is, I always say, if it's not accessible, it's not yoga. I mean, the basis of yoga is this kind of, uh, is a spiritual universal teachings that we're all connected on one level. And if we can't practice together, people can't be welcomed into a space. And I don't think we're practicing yoga there. Um, even, but, but given that people don't have to choose to come to you, do you know what I'm saying? So I guess I just want to place it that way that I think yoga teachers have a, a job to make their offerings hundred percent welcoming, hundred percent accessible and hundred percent safe. And then people will pick and choose who wants to study with you. Uh, mm, I, I but I don't think we have a choice. I, yeah. It's such a cop out. And, and I, I under, you know, I understand sometimes what they're saying. We want to work on back bends today. So whatever, but yeah, what are you even working on? And, and, like, <laughs> and, and then, you know, then it's in the realm of exercise. It's not in the realm of yoga. And it's, yeah. I agree if it's, and teachers need, even if, you know, if they're highly experienced in doing this vinyasa power flow, how can you adapt that experience for someone yeah. that will give them a taste of the same intention and maybe the same vibration without necessarily doing it? Because lots of other people in the room may learn a lot from that person's experience. I think that's really true inclusion is when we don't go, oh, well, I'm going to give you the baby version of this. But when we all try something different so mm-hmm. we find out what the experience of being in another body or another mind is like and, and really empathize with it. Yeah. Um, so again, that. going back to that, exactly, that, to the answer to that question, I think we have a responsibility um, that actually, to me, it's essentially what yoga means is to create welcoming, safe environments if we say we're practicing or teaching yoga, I mean, like, yeah, like Maria said, it could be exercise and that's great. Like, go ahead. Exercise is wonderful and amazing. You know, like gymnastics are amazing and, um, 
circus arts are amazing too. Like I really think there is an art to that and I, and dance and there's so much beautiful movement and movement practices that are available. They don't always have to be called yoga and they're not, they don't, they're not always yoga, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I think if we're teaching them as yoga, then we have to be a little more thoughtful about the, the format. What are we doing? Jeevana, is that kind of by, because I just maybe had a, had a little insight into cultural appropriation. Is that also just taking this practice of yoga and turning it into an exercise class, an example? Obviously, it's an example of appropriation, but. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear my, the, there's someone gardening <laughs> next door. It's gotten very loud. <laughs> um, Yes, I think cultural appropriation is when you take some indigenous practice and you actually take piecemeal, you, you take it apart, you kind of pick it apart and you use just like one part, for example, just asana, um, and then you sell it, you make profit off of it, and you even sell it back to the original um, culture that you took it from. And I think that's what we see with um, modern postural yoga for sure. I mean, that is the definition of cultural appropriation. I don't, I don't think that everyone um, who's practicing yoga is practicing in a way that's appropriation. But I think generally speaking, that is the way that the Western practice has moved, right? Uh, in fact, I think we can get away from appropriation by doing what I'm saying, which is let's go back to the essential teachings, to the source, mm -hmm. look at the practice in a more holistic way and understand more about the context that asana came out of. Why were people practicing asana? What was the intention? What was the goal? Um, and then it doesn't feel like it's appropriation as much if we're using it in a more comprehensive fashion. Thank you. That was and, so helpful because yeah. I, I didn't understand cultural appropriation till that very moment, and I was getting very defensive about it. But in your definition, you actually then create the action, which is go back to source and teach the wholeness of it or learn. And yeah. Then yeah. yeah. I, th I think also, and also it's about being respectful, honestly, to the tradition, just respecting, um, acknowledging your teachers, mm -hmm. uh, acknowledging the roots of the practice that it comes from India and from um, indigenous cultures there from people of color. I think that's really important for yoga practitioners in the West to acknowledge, you know, that this is the, the, these are the teachings of communities of color that we're using. Um, so especially right now, when we're becoming more aware of racism, I think that's really important. Uh, and white supremacy. So cultural appropriation is kind of a, it's a, it's a way that white supremacy functions. And it's part of colonization where we you basically are destroying indigenous cultures through colonization. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't want to be part of that personally. You know, I want to personally find a way to practice and teach that is respectful to the traditions of India to, to lift up, um, voices of Indian teachers so that we can actually hear directly from them as well. Uh, and I try and do that as much as I can in my work. Wow. Fantastic. That's another thing that just impresses me so much about what you do, Jeevana. And I'm kind of interested in how you even pull it off. You have so, you highlight and pull forward so many others. I remember you, you it was one, an introduction to one of your yoga conferences and you said this profound thing, which I loved, which where you said, I want to do this work. 
and then you met someone, and I'm forgetting who, what her name is, and you liked what her work was, and you said, well, I'm just going to support her work. Why do I have to put myself in front? Yeah. Do you remember that? I mean, that yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly who that was, but I remember that idea because that's really at the heart of my practice. I mean, that's that's yoga practice. Like, I, I don't, again, if you go back to the sutras, it's all about mm-hmm. understanding your own the way that your your mind functions, your own um, attachments, and your, your the nature of your own ego, and trying not to build it up, but actually to refine it. So we're not trying to destroy the ego or destroy the mind, but we want to have a, a refined tool so that we can actually be at peace and we can find happiness. And that doesn't come through building yourself up. It doesn't come through marketing yourself and becoming more popular and making more money and being famous. Like we actually have a, a huge misunderstanding about the nature of happiness and the way yoga works. Mm-hmm. I mean, yoga is directly at odds with the with Western capitalist culture and what we've been trained in, which is we're trained that more is better. And that's actually the opposite. And yoga, it's those things interfere with our experience of our true self and with peace. And I want to, I want to be happy. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I love that you touched on all of this because we've talked a bit about, um, you know, yoga and the way that it's being taught. And what it's brought me to is this, uh, this kind of belief that we need to expand what we're teaching. In other words, a lot of yoga teachers are just teaching asana, but what we really need to do is teach yoga. So teach all of it. And there, it feels like there's a lot of teachers who know the yamas and the niyamas, and they may know little aspects of the sutras, but they don't know how to teach it. They don't know, in, in some ways they may not even know how to live it. And even just in this conversation, you've given some fantastic, really simple examples for how people can incorporate the teachings of the sutras into their yoga classes, into who they are in their yoga classes, into how they carry themselves and how they engage with their students. Um, have you got any other? Have you got any yeah, other? Well, you mentioned asana, and I just add something which I always explain in my trainings, which I think can be helpful. That if you're practicing asana, I always ask you know people to consider um, what what does that mean? How what is it that makes it an asana mm-hmm. instead of exercise and it's not that exercise is bad. Exercise is good. But I'm just saying what makes it yoga. And I think it has to do with the focus, the intention, the what the mind is doing. And so I, I would just offer that for yoga teachers to, you know, I don't mean to criticize someone who, who's teaching a class that's 99% asana. That can be yoga still. But I think you have to consciously bring in that, that increased self-awareness. Yeah. That asana can cultivate. That's why asana is incredible. I mean, it is maybe one of the most powerful tools we have in yoga, but we need to use it um, correctly, which is to use it to increase self-awareness by focusing the mind. So when you're doing asana, you're focusing on something. You're focusing on some inner experience. Either you can have sensations in the body. You can focus on the breath. You could have a mantra or something focused in, you know, with the mind or a drishti point internal point or external um you could focus on other things but that focus is the word right you're focusing on something i think that's where the yoga comes in because we're working on refining our own thinking and working on having clear vision 
So Asana really is an amazing tool for that, for refining our vision. Um, but we just need to teach it with that in mind. Yeah, that's brilliant. Because yeah. yeah. Asana ends up being a means to teach people about themselves. So you get a little less concerned with the details of the actual asana. Where you put yeah. go, you know. Yeah. You can learn about yourself. I mean, I've learned so much about myself in asana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I watch what my mind does. My mind wants to move on to the next one immediately, or it wants to um, think about something else. Maybe I'm worried about something. I mean, I just, you know, it, it becomes a place, it, it becomes a meditation, mm-hmm. right? That's how you become, that's how it becomes a meditation by bringing in that reflection, that self-reflection. Um, like Svadhyaya, you know that word, that um, self-reflection. That's really, that's how we make something into yoga. We make anything into yoga, you know? It's just like with mindfulness, when you, you know, I think the Buddhists have been better at that than yogas, yogis have, but like um, walking meditation or riding your bike meditation, like Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about bringing meditation into life. And I think actually yoga is the same. We can bring yoga into our lives through increased self-awareness at any moment. Um, it's just that asana, pranayama, meditation, all the tools that we have in yoga, they're designed for that. They actually cultivate that, that experience of increased self-awareness by, by nature. That's what they're designed to do. So, and, they're, and they're very effective practices. Yeah, so to me, Svadhyaya is one of my one of my favorite parts of yoga. Even just like a busy person and a mom who's constantly got you know kids and people asking for things, and you feeling kind of like you're living outside of yourself. That ability just to to say, mm-hmm. what do I want? How do I feel? What do I need? How you know what what's going to make this okay for me in the moment? Um, that feels really decadent. Like to me, that's way better than a saw day or a, you know, a mani-pedi or something like that. Uh-huh. You know, just the ability to ask, to create a yeah. little space to ask those questions and just be with them. Well, you're you're a real yogi then, right? You're really, pra- you're practicing. I mean, that's it right there. You know, that's what the first, that's, if we go back to Patanjali, you know, in book two, book two is how to practice. Right. Like book one, he's explaining what yoga is, basically. Um, And then book two, he's saying how to do it. And he starts with Kriya Yoga, Yoga in Action. And it's three parts. We talked already about tapas, you know, learning, being willing to learn from the pain. And then Svadhyaya, Mm -hmm. understanding where we're stuck. Why is pain coming? Where where are we attached? Uh, And then finally, Ishvara Pranidhana, letting go, trusting, trusting in ourselves, you know, in our own heart, basically. Um, kind of like, you know, knowing that just the feeling like, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and that's a pretty powerful message for this time that we're in too, because I think a lot of the anxiety that people feel and the hopelessness that people feel is born out of perhaps a, some kind of a belief that things aren't going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. I know. I think it's, well, this has really been the, the gift for me of, of living through an AIDS crisis when I was very young, is just that I was surrounded by illness and death at a really young age. And 
it's not that everything is going to be okay. Actually, the fact is like, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just more like reality. That's okay. <laughs> it's just like, that's okay. You know what I'm saying? So it's like changing the expectation to say, oh, wait, actually, we're all going to die. So we really just make the best of the time we have here. And that's what, you know, that's a different expectation than like some denial of like, I'm going to live forever. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's not reality. I think we all live, a lot of us live in fantasy land. Actually, it's funny. I often ask my students, like, how many of you think about death every day? And it's like half and half. Like, I feel like half, half of the world is very much on it in terms of like, I'm mortal. I know I'm going to die making the best of every day. The other half is like fantasy. Mm. Um, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> I don't know. Yogis are very realistic. That's what I was saying. Yeah. 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 There's freedom in that though. I think there's freedom in being realistic about things. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, that's... exactly. Exactly. And does it work for you, Jeevan, to write through your personal life too? Maybe that's too personal a question, but I, I find for me... No, I'm an utter failure. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm the most, like all of us, of course. Because <laughs> I can be my best self somehow when I'm being the teacher. I, I sort of step into who I, who I want to be. But then when I get home, it's very challenging because I'm so attached. Yeah, because you're human. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, say, like, I, I used to... Yeah, I used to think I was a failure. Now I said it as a joke because the fact is, like, I'm doing the best I can, just like everyone else. Like, I don't, I mean, I've reduced my own expectations about myself. Like, I'm not enlightened. I'm just learning and growing and I make mistakes. And sometimes I don't make a mistake and I do okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, every moment is an opportunity um, to learn something. <laughs> sometimes those lessons are more painful than others. <laughs> Um, so my life is not like perfect at all, but, you know, I think it's really the way I, I can tell if I'm practicing, like do, in my mind, if I'm doing my practice is if I am not getting annoyed with my family. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I an excellent litmus test because it, it really is, yeah. you really have control over that. Yeah. Not over yeah. that, but over our own equanimity in response to whatever happens yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah when i when i see myself getting irritated then i think ah okay something's going on like it means there's some unresolved thing like i'm upset about something or i'm worried about something there's some inner experience that i'm having that i'm not seeing clearly that i haven't expressed emotionally and i'm basically taking it on on them mm. oh, beautifully put <laughs> this kind of touches on um something that we talked about a little bit with Michelle um, Johnson, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, which might be kind of a good point for us to kind of go out on. But um, it's this idea that we're in this moment right now. There's this sort of heightened awareness and perhaps a heightened tension around, you know, Black Lives Matter and about all of these issues that affect all of us. And it's not sustainable. And, you know, in terms of our, our own ability to maintain this heightened state, and Michelle kind of talked about um, us having tools to, to self-regulate mm -hmm. so that we can kind of maintain whatever energy levels we need to, to, you know, to go the distance. And I kind of wondered, 
from your standpoint, how do we keep these these conversations, these bigger and important conversations going? Yeah. Actually, I, I oh, she's amazing, Michelle. I, I hope people mm-hmm. read her book, um, Skill in Action. Wow. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Uh, yeah. Um, I would say I agree with on the one hand, but I also would say that I think it's the job of yoga practitioners to have that increased self-awareness. That's really been the theme of our talk here. And I just, I don't want to let people off the hook too much. I think what's happening in the world right now is that increased self-awareness. And I think it is sustainable in a sense that that's our, that's our practice. So that's where, that's a responsibility, um, especially people who have privilege. Now, if you feel like you're not privileged because you're suffering, you know, because you're a person of color and, you're dealing with racism or, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm gay. So I definitely have some marginalization, but it's like, I need to find a way to do some self-care. So what I say is self-care is service to yourself. Um, it means really learning, being reflective about what I need now. Like, honestly, what do I need so that I can be an effective, um, so I can be effective in the world in doing my work. So that's an important question that we all need to ask ourselves all the time, not just right now, but we need to ask ourselves, um, what is, how do we actually take care of ourselves in an honest and authentic way that is of service to ourselves? Like I said, I have a friend who um, has multiple sclerosis and she said, how can I be of service to the world? You know, I, I can barely leave the house. Yeah. Which is now funny because I'm not leaving my house. But um <laughs> I was talking to her about her practice and she was saying that she meditates every morning and then she prays for all the people in her life and, and the entire universe and all this stuff. And these prayers, she spends a lot of time in prayer. And I was like, wow, that feels like a really beautiful service. Like that's, you know, first of all, you're taking care of yourself first, which is, you know, you need to do that. Like your service to your body can be the way you serve period. Your body needs a lot of care. So there's your service right there, taking care of your body. And then on top of that, you're actually sending prayers out to other people, which feels very generous to me. So, I mean, I think we can all do that. We can all be of service um, in some way. Mm. I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, when will your book be coming out? Is it a long ways from coming out? I have to write it. Um, (laughs) uh, It takes a long time, not just to write, but then the editing process. So probably it won't be out fall of next year it'll be like a good year just over a year it'll be out Um, well hopefully we'll have a chance to see you again perhaps on the other side of that i can tell you now i am really awaiting this book because this has just been a brilliant conversation i've had there's so many nuggets of goodness that have come out of this for me so thank you so very much jivana for even just taking the time to be with us yeah thank you and and you start a podcast too i think that would be so interesting would that be your central theme if you start one um, I mean, we're thinking of starting an accessible yoga podcast just to highlight some of the work that we're doing. And to be honest, not just the work we're doing, but the work that other people are doing, because I feel like that, again, goes back to what we said before around yeah. appropriation and around working with my ego is creating a platform for other voices. So I love the idea of a podcast for that. And like you're doing here. I mean, having me, it's very generous of you. Um so thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks for asking such great questions. That was really fun. I'll have to listen too because I could use some of that for my book. Yeah. Well, it was wonderful. I can't wait to listen to you because um, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Sweet. Thank you.
Oh, what a yummy conversation, huh? So inspiring, so gentle, and so powerful at the same time. You know, this one definitely left me feeling changed in some way. And I've been thinking a lot, actually, about how accessible my yoga classes are and about how accessible I'm making the work that I'm doing in the world. Maybe that's a question you want to ask yourself, too. You know, Jeevana's organization, Accessible Yoga, they're doing some wonderful work in the world. They've got trainings and conferences, as I mentioned at the beginning, and they're also starting to offer some online classes and courses on topics like race and equality and accessibility in yoga, as you would imagine. So if you're interested in learning more, definitely check out the show notes for more details. We put a bunch of links in there to Jeevana's work. And as we talked about, Jeevana is currently in the process of writing a book on social justice. So we're going to see what we can do to get him back when that book is ready for prime time. And on a different note, if there's any of you out there who are yoga teachers or students who are interested in learning more about how to apply the principles and practices of Ayurveda into your yoga as a maybe as a powerful step towards restoring a feeling of wholeness to your life and to your teaching, I would love to have you join me for a training that I'm running called The Elements of Yoga, Ayurveda for Yoga Teachers and Students. So it's a 30-hour live online intensive that I'm going to be running over the course of about five weeks in late August and September, and I am very excited about it. If you'd like details about what it is, what will be included, and how we'll be running it, or even details about how to book, if you've heard about it and you're interested in signing up, please go ahead and check out the show notes. We'll go ahead and put a link in there for the page with all the details for that. And again... Thank you so very much for choosing to be a part of our podcast family. Your listening makes this possible, and we love and appreciate all of your praise and your encouragement. And I got to tell you, we've got so much more goodness coming your way in the weeks ahead. So definitely stay tuned. Subscribe if you're interested in getting notifications about when those episodes are going to be ready for listening. But more than anything else, take care of yourselves. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.